Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to the first interview of 2020. It already is um, almost two thirds away through through January already, and Christmas and New Year seems to be so far away. But we are keeping on with our mission um, to look at how human factors is used in different domains. And one of the domains I've not really done much much work in is the civil nuclear domain, which is why I'm incredibly pleased to have a um, almost ambassador for that for, for that domain. And introduce um, Grant Hudson, who is the Head of Human Factors at Cavendish Nuclear. Welcome, Grant. Hello, Barry. How's it going? I'm very well, thank you. Um, thank you very much for, for joining us. Now, I've got a, disl- a slight disclaimer here that um, Grant is somebody who I've known for quite a long time. And in fact, I've sort of worked out that it is literally 20 years ago this month that I first met you. And yeah. in, in my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's very crazy, isn't it? So in my first ever um, civilian job after leaving the army, the first person I met in my, my new office was your good self. Indeed. Um, and now you're the head of human factors at Cavendish Nuclear. So what does the head of human factors at Cavendish Nuclear actually do? Good question. Um, do quite a lot. It's, um, I oversee the technical governance of the human factors work. I manage the human factors team. Um, I input to bids. I um, act as technical expert in certain areas such as human factors integration, which is still um, <clears throat> to an extent in its infancy in the nuclear industry compared to defence. Um, I liaise with senior management. I do recruitment. Um, Lots of managementy type stuff, basically, but um, still with a, uh, the odd finger or toe dipped in the um, technical pie. So you still find yourself being, still being able to actually um, do what I guess we would class as the fun stuff as, as as well as the management then? Well, it's handy when you're actually working out who's doing the work. Not that I tend to try to pick and choose the most fun stuff, but that is an option. <laughs> That's brilliant. So as you said, we, we've, I guess, both been in this game now for... For quite a while. Um, so how did you actually get into human factors in the first place? How did you decide that you want to get into this field? Um, well, I left school and I went into doing a software engineering apprenticeship because I loved computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a four-year apprenticeship. And in my fourth year, I was working on the um, Enroute Centre for the UK, which is the Swanwick Air Traffic Control Centre. And I was doing some really exciting coding, which was taking all the different radar feeds from different networks and converting them into a single data packet. As you can tell, that was thrilling. Um, Yeah. And there was a lot of people in the corner. There was a few people in the corner doing, at the time, what was really cool stuff with pictures. Because way back when in, like, the early 90s, computer graphics were still you know, the realm of games machines and you know, computer games. So I just got chatting to them. I wanted a way out of the software engineering world. And um, one of them said, well, why don't you go to Loughborough and do a degree in ergonomics? And I said, what the hell's that? <laughs> Fair enough. They gave me the information. <clears throat> I applied, got on the course, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. 
So it was literally you. You'd never heard of this at sort of school or or even at, um, what do you do now? No, it, I mean it was that. It was that way. I mean, my my, my school, they'd just about heard of computers and computer programming because <laughs> when I yeah. left school, I actually was a systems analyst, <clears throat> and then uh-huh. they had no idea what that meant. So yes, and then got into yeah. So never heard of ergonomics or human factors. Never done anything psychology related or you know, a little bit of human biology and human anatomy when I was at school, but nothing sort of typically okay. ergonomic. Yeah. So, so now you're you've been to uh, you've been to Loughborough. You're um, a fully qualified and raring to go. Where, where's your career path taken you after that? Um, left Loughborough and then. <clears throat> I started off at Smith's Aerospace, which is now GE Aviation, um, up in Cheltenham, working for Alison Starr, and working on a mixture of European and UK um, projects, um, speech recognition, touchscreens, looking at AI, but a lot of the sort of um, HCI aspects of it, um, and did that for about four four years, and you came along about after the Year three, I think it was. Something like that. And then you started to leave me astray with various um, trips out, I seem to remember. But, Maybe. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I started off at Smith's there for four years, then moved to uh, Quintech, which is, part of, which is Talus Consulting, not to be confused with at the time, Kinetic. Um, yes. Worked on... Um, HMS Queen Elizabeth, or as was um, CVF at the time. Um, worked on Bowman, um, supported a lot of other smaller projects, but primarily QE and Bowman were the big ones I was working on. Um, moved on from there to MBDA, where I became a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, don't you? You really I like that. I can honestly say to people, this isn't rocket science. Um, so yes, was there for a couple of years working on um, complex weapon systems, looking at the um, human machine interfaces uh, for uh, planning, looking at um, aspects of um, Type 45's weapon systems, and actually became the, as they termed it, operational architecture lead for a new concept weapon, which was an interesting project um, because. I changed my name to protect the innocent, as it were, and became the operational architecture lead and had nothing to do with human factors. Because the team of graduates so is this were is... <coughs> doing HF by stealth. Right. The um, team of engineers I had were kind of not exactly anti-human factors, but saw it as a bit wussy and pointless. And then the first month I had them thinking basically nothing but operator and maintainer issues so the hf report that i could dump out of the system every month was incredibly good and i had done nothing for it <laughs> well done nice good skills yeah um i left there and i went to work for circo which is now part of jacobs <clears throat> um, which is my first foray into the nuclear industry um did some work for sellafield and uh, the local power stations of oldbury and barclay near bristol um, moved on from there to Atkins, where I was the human factors capability lead for uh, defence, and 
effectively started doing a lot more of the management side of things there, uh, bid work. We did a lot of um, anthropometric modelling using Jack on various um, military vehicles. <coughs> um, also had um, sort of mixing back into working for um, AWE and supporting Sellafield in the early days of their security enhancement programme. And then from there, moved to Cavendish Nuclear, and where I am still today after just about six and a half years. This must be the longest role you've ever had at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it shocked me. Wow. <laughs> um, we were very impressed. Stability. Um, I mean, clearly, clearly the experience that you've had is, is quite um, phenomenally vast. You've worked on a, on, on a wide range of programmes and, and for um, a number of different companies. But what's been that most challenging project you've worked on? Challenging, I think, would have to have been Bowman because it was such a variety of vehicles to fit the radio systems into with different issues, so many stakeholders, um, so many different, you know, what the senior military wanted versus the, the lower ranks versus what <coughs> requirements might have said versus what um, the well, DPA as was, but um, DNS as it is now um, yeah. want to pay for. Um, so, and, so just yeah. just to jump in, just, just for those that are not aware, Bowman is is the communications system or almost like communications backbone now that um, is in every vehicle and and on every person, pretty much. So, what you were doing then is is really very fundamental to the way that the military um, operated then and still operate today. Indeed, and it was the first time anything like that had been done on the vehicles. Um, and we were having to fight requirements that had been set 20 years beforehand based on a completely different type of vehicle. Um, I think one of the, the, the comedy moments of the project, I remember sitting in a review because I, I was in charge of, well, one of my vehicles I was in charge of was Land Rover. And I had the um, one of the chief engineers of uh, Jaguar Land Rover in the meeting. <clears throat> and when he found out the G-Shock requirement that the equipment had to go through, he fell off the chair laughing <laughs> with the words, but the vehicle self-destructs at six. And it nice. was a good 10 times or more of that, that the radio equipment had to survive. And so we, we had to pick him up. Um, so, But it was set for putting into a, um, a Challenger tank. They're just copying and pasting that requirement. It was, it was right. constantly, um, yeah, it was it was challenging. It was on the go. It was having to keep your wits about you constantly. Um, <clears throat> the guys from Kinetic were always um, up for a challenge, up for finding a gap in a hole. So you really did have to be fully on it the whole time. Yeah. So if that was the most challenging, then what was it, what's been the most rewarding? Would you say? Rewarding was a tiny little project that I did when I was at uh, Quintech. That was um, uh -huh. called MindTech. It was um, supporting ERA technology, and they developed a um, a landmine detector with a very special um, human machine interface. And it oh, was okay. working with them and going out to Bosnia and seeing the guys in the field in minefields, 
and seeing how they operated, learning how to actually um, detect mines and pull them out of the ground yourself because there were several big training areas where they buried um, dead mines and you could you know, sweep for them and then actually learn how to you know, take a mine out of the ground safely. Um, but it was going okay. around the Avo and seeing what, what the impact of removing the landmines was on people. It was right. giving people their lives back. Um, you know, school children could go to school again. Um, so some pretty horrific stuff um, that the Serbs had done with the mines out there. And um, clearly, wow. um, yes, it was sort of booby upon booby upon booby trap in some areas, um, just absolutely horrific. But it was it was giving people you know, their houses back, their schools back, things like that that it was contributing to. Wow, I mean that that was uh, that might also preclude the uh, my next question then, which is really, I mean, we in human factors obviously get to work with users an awful lot. Um, because that's the bread and butter about what we do. But what is that? What's that most interesting user group you've had to interact with, either for a challenging or rewarding, or just what 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 user group do you remember more 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 most than anything else? The actual user group that was the most, I think, interesting, challenging, and to an extent rewarding, all in one. Bit of a generalisation, but I would say the British Army, possibly tapping oh. in. The uh, Royal Marines, the guys at Four Two Commando. Okay, that's a that's a combo. Uh, why why is that? That was um partly because it's the having to break the barriers down so they don't see you as a senior officer because all civil they regard c- all, all civilians kind of no matter you know, when you're at work as an officer. And you walk in with, with that's my dog, sorry, um, with senior in your job title. And um, you know, instantly they see you as like a major and they clam up a bit, but it's getting to break down those barriers, you know, telling them, no, I appreciate that you're supposed to call me sir, um, but I haven't been knighted quite yet. So just call me by my <laughs> name. Um, and you know, I find the easiest, found the easiest way to do that was to make them a brew. And that kind Fair of right. barriers down. And, but they were always so supportive you know, keen, helpful, um, yeah, and so varied if you compare, you know, when I say the army, you know, you're working with cavalry one week, a different cavalry um, division the next, and they're, they're just as bonkers but slightly different. You've got more artillery, you've got logistics corps, you've got infantry, different types of infantry, you've got the medical guys, and then you've got the, you've got the marines on top who are a different flavour of crazy, but in a really, really good, helpful, supportive, we want to get this job done way. Cool. That sounds that. So thanks for that. We'll come back in 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 a minute or so's time when we look up on the nuclear industry as a whole. Okay. Cool. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. Welcome back. So obviously you've had 
as as we said, we've you've had really fascinating uh, career today. But now you're fully embedded in the uh, in, in the nuclear industry. So, where does human factors have that really that biggest impact in the in the nuclear environment? It's a difficult one. There's areas where it should have a big impact, but a lot of the human factors input um, in the nuclear industry is based on historical interactions. Um, traditionally, it's a case of you will support the safety case and you will come in and you will assess something. Um, typically okay. in defense or aerospace, you'll get involved at the beginning or early on in the design and influence that. Um, but the nuclear industry is still very heavily into assessment. It's starting to try and get HF a bit involved in design, but you're then up against very um, well-established um, disciplines, for example, mechanical process, um, right. electrical controls and instrumentation. They've all got their domains, and then some of them are okay with these weird HF people coming in and helping them, and others just <laughs> see as well, we've not used you before. We, you know, we did a perfectly good design last time. So are you then really just coming in and almost checking their homework rather than um, getting involved as early as you possibly can then? Um, in a lot of projects, yes. So we'll get a, a design or we'll turn up for a HAZOP, that's a hazard and operability study, um, and we'll you know, assess it. And we'll say, this is good from an anthropometric perspective, or you can't reach it, or it's too big, it's too heavy, or you're going to need more people or we need to develop training. Um, but on some projects, um, tends to be the ones that the engineering managers, how can I put this, I've possibly had the most influence on or maybe just threatened <laughs> enough times <laughs> around, <laughs> around the water cooler that um, they come to me first or my team because they, they've seen in one way the damage that human factors can do coming in at the end, picking right. holes in something that the guys have been working on for years and then going, right, and then back to the drawing board. Yeah. Okay. Whereas if they get us involved early, these guys, some of the guys realise that if you get us involved early on, there's more of a chance for getting through at the end. So do they see that as, um, as a, I guess, a potential cost saving or an efficiency saving or just they get you off off their back earlier? I'd say for for the ones that are sort of like in one way pro-HF, all three of the above. Right. Okay. But I don't really care because it has the result that, you know, as an HF you know, practitioner, I want, which is to yeah. get the design as good as possible from the early stages. So how do you... Um... How do you see this changing over time? Because I mean, I, I fully agree with what you're saying. Because we uh, we worked in quite a few domains now where, um, unless it's really heavily mandated, I mean, uh, the defence industry. We've sort of talked on this podcast before about the where standards come from and things like that. Mm -hmm. But you've got you've got standards that are so six point five oh eight and and things like that that really um are quite woolly when it comes to how the operator gets involved in these things um do you think there's a standards issue in the nuclear environment um i think there is there's a little bit of a standards issue but uh, one of the issues is that every site license company 
So, for example, Magnox or EDF or Sellafield or any of the smaller organisations all have their own guidance, which, yes, okay. it's derived from a lot of the standards, but it's derived, each site is different and will derive their own preferred aspects from those standards. There's no standardization, as it were, across the nuclear industry. <laughs> um, right, okay. Which appears, from, from my interactions with the uh, regulator, to almost be encouraged, um, especially when oh, it comes to aspects as um, human factors integration, because coming from defense land, there is one process, and that will fit your 10 grand assessment of a generator up to your... You know, multi-billion pound purchase of aircraft carriers or um, military vehicles, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, because it's human rights integration isn't that well understood. It's, it's mandated, but not well understood, as it were. Everyone does it differently. So it's a lack of not so much standards, but standardization, I'd say, across the industry. And it, it, I mean... My in- instinct to that is, oh my goodness, you know, how can we, how we, how can we not do that? But I guess, is there an opportunity there as well? Because actually, I guess dif- different sites have different, uh, different requirements and things like that. Therefore, is it an opportunity for human factors practitioners to actually just implement what is needed rather than having to ad- adhere to an overall process that could be unwieldy? It could be, um, but I've always regarded as regarded the mod the. Know, the mods processes it's as unwieldy as you don't want it to be it's highly tailorable yeah. um but um i think it's because i'm not wishing to tread on too many toes for once in my life um a lot of the human factors practitioners in um the nuclear industry come from psychology background rather than an engineering or ergonomics or human factors background as it were so they've got okay. views and different understandings of um, how to integrate with engineering and design and focus on um, the the error side of things. And that's you know, a good thing in a way is focusing on human error because to reduce human error makes things safer. And in the nuclear industry, you don't want something that's unsafe. It's a bad day. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, so alongside that, then, what what do you see the um, the big challenges in the nuclear in- industry right now? What what are the sort of problems you're 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 facing? Oh, <clears throat> problems we're facing, I think, is overall the nuclear industry is coming to terms with having budgets, um, which historically it's been a bottomless pit. Now it is right. constrained. So, for example, Sellafield will get audited by the um, by the government auditors, um, which never used to happen, to see how public money is being spent. So people are clamping down, and unfortunately, because a lot of the weight is in, for example, mechanical, and the managers will come from mechanical, they'll protect what they know, not this new mm-hmm. fly-by-night thing called human factors, but. I know in some areas, for example, the, the new build, they are doing a lot of human factors by accident, which is nice to see. 
Um, there's areas that don't have HF people, but they're doing it. Um, and that's kind of working quite well. Training, for example, is changing. Um, but I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we still face is the disassociating human factors from the safety case. Um, okay. And getting people to realize that, yes, human factors supports the safety case doing human liability and human error, but it massively supports the design and engineering. And if you get in there, it makes it safer and more reliable for when someone comes to assess it at the end for human error. Um, it's making that mindset and just getting them to think a little bit more systematically as opposed to stovepipe by discipline. Okay, so if you were um, somebody coming to work to be part of your team, what um, what sort of tools and techniques would they be using on a sort of a regular basis? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just no, no. the book. <laughs> no, that's what, people, what, what do you always use? Oh, you've got the fundamentals of task analysis, but you know, whether that's hierarchical, tabular, whether it's link, you know, all the different analyses, techniques, we will use whichever are appropriate for the job. Um, we'll use um, primarily sort of standards or company, or when I say company as in um, site license company um, guidance for HMI design, but we will use different techniques um, to sort of work out the um, allocation of function, whether it's appropriate, what could be improved. Um, so we'll do that, um, do quite a bit of manual handling assessment, um, but it's just using the Mac tool just to make it clear to engineers that that 15 kilogram object can't be lifted by someone at arm's length whilst they're lying down, for example. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that, I can see that. It's amazing how, how I think they've been watching too many Marvel movies, some of the mechanical engineers. <laughs> the, the things I've come across, not just those at Cavendish, but across the industry. Oh, well, you know, if someone can do this, it's like, wow. <laughs> and no Iron Man suit either. But um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll use effectively whatever is around. I mean, um, I, I'm a, I love human factors integration, and I will always indoctrinate anyone in my team into human factors integration because it's, to me, it's not just a process, it's a way of thinking. And um, that will then help them to identify sort of the most appropriate tools, techniques and approaches to use for whatever it is we're either designing or assessing. I mean, from an assessment perspective, human error, we use Heart, Burp, a little bit of Savannah River, um, skill rule knowledge, for example, um, just to assess you know, how difficult activities are or how prone to error they are found it but yeah cool so cool a, a, a good portfolio of tools and techniques so and is it the sort of environment where you can you know you might go to the um to a human factors conference or a safety conference and somebody pops up with a, a new idea or, or a new methodology do you have that sort of scope to be able to say well actually I, I fancy trying that out and seeing where we go or do you have to stick with well-tried well-tested techniques Predominantly, it is well tried and well tested because 
the um, the regulator is incredibly cautious and risk averse, and anything new potentially introduces risk. Quite yes, that's um, true. For example, it's Hart or Thurp, maybe a bit of Savannah River or Skill Rule knowledge. End of. However, EDF uses a human error technique called NARA, okay. and it's only them that is permitted to use it in the UK with the ONR having done an awful lot of hand-holding and working with them to get them bought into it. So it's not a case of the regulator and other organisations don't accept it. It just takes a lot of effort to push it through sometimes. Okay. So it is, it's possible, but not easy. Um, Do you think that that causes us some issues with, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll use an example without actually naming it, but I've been playing around with one um, with one technique, um, a measurement technique, and we, it was chosen because there was, there's not much um, other stuff in the field, and it's it was it's a well-known technique. But then, if everybody else is using is having to use the well-known technique, then it's clearly going to get more and more um, uh, more coverage. And it's almost a self-sucking lollipop. And if you're actually using the technique, but it might not actually be ideal for what you're using for using it for, we'll never get out of that hole. So, yes. do you think that? Yeah. So, how do you think we get out of that loop, or do you just think actually, um, from what you've said, if it's just going to be those tried and tested techniques, and if something new comes along, then it's going to take a lot of motivation from somebody to get to get it to get it worthwhile. I think it will take a lot of motivation or a significant event to make people look at things differently. That, for example, you, well, all the human error was assessed at, let's say, 10 to the minus 4 for these activities, but yeah. they keep making a mistake at you know, 1 in 100 times of doing it. But the, all the analysis is still spot on. What's actually wrong? Well, perhaps the technique isn't correct. Um, because, like, all, all quantitative human error methodologies and human liability methodologies there's still a little bit wet finger in the air when you delve down into the maths and what they're based on Mm. that's interesting my i don't have a a vast amount of experience of using their techniques and that there does seem to be a certain element of rolling a dice and then putting putting 10 uh, times 10 to the negative 4 behind it just to come up with a result. Um, but I'm, I'm very much convinced by a lot of people that that's not the case. No, it's not the case. But um, I remember going on a human reliability training course when I first got into the industry when I was at Circo. And after it, I said to the, the trainer, there's a risk here that depending how I'm feeling in the morning when I get up, I can get two different results. I went, yes. Because whilst it's quantitative, whilst there are tables, a lot of it is down to personal interpretation. Mm. Try not to put your own personal view of risk or that'll be all right onto it and selecting valid, but not necessarily the most appropriate, as it were, set of figures. So whilst it's not quite as, okay. as rolling the dice and X to the minus, 10 to the minus 4, there is a lot of, um, it is open to a lot of variance across different HF practitioners and personality types. 
but that's where I guess you need. So that's where the whole squep, the suitably qualified and experienced personnel, and your experience really, really comes into play. Then um, it helps, but again, if if you've got someone that's let's say a bit blasé and has come up with a ten to the minus four, and the person that's reviewing it is also a little bit blasé, and go, yeah, that's about right. But if you've got someone that's very risk averse, you know, inherently. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been around for 10, 15 years doing it, um, they might challenge that 10 to the minus 4 and go, no, it should be 10 to the minus 3, which can have a massive impact on the safety case. Yes, um, that's very true. And being a lot of HF practitioners don't tend to work that much together on, on projects. Um, you know, if you've got a safety case, you might have a, you know, 10 or 15 safety case engineers, but only perhaps one human factors person and then maybe their boss verifying their numbers or someone else that they're brought in to verify those numbers now that's a um, that's a very good point i mean there is a lot of times at the moment particularly i guess with the um human factors community actually being quite small there are a lot of um job openings out there at the moment we, we're not we're not a massive community in the grand scheme of things. We we very thin, very thinly spread. Indeed. So with seemingly fewer and fewer people coming online every year. So, so that, I guess that that is a bit of a a message out to other people. Is there's the, there's a very lucrative industry out out here just to be just to be taken up. Um, if people are looking for that for that next job move. Indeed, and I mean that's something I've definitely picked up on from moving from software into human factors. It's some people call it niche. I just regard it as the typical um, supply and demand. Whereas in the case of human factors, demand outstrips supply. So, yes, yeah. no, that's very true. So to take a slightly um, step backwards into all this, did you watch the um, the Chernobyl oh, yeah. um, thing on? It'd be interesting to get, because I don't know about you, but I found that really quite... You know, I wanted to sit back and enjoy it just as a TV series, um, but I couldn't help dive into all the the, the human behaviour elements of it, um, some of the HCI side of things as well. What was your take on it? What did you think? Yeah. Um, well, from an industry perspective, I'd say it was probably about 98, 99% accurate because there's some stuff that wasn't necessary to show and they didn't show it. Um, from okay. a, but yeah, it, it struck me that it was human factors in capital letters going up to the Politburo level. <laughs> yes. It was, it, was, it was human error. Oh, yeah. But it was human error from government and the culture from government and everything that had pervaded down. Um, you know, the guys operating it, you know, they get a kicking because they weren't trained, they weren't this. They believed, you know, they, they were doing everything they could. Um, because if they didn't, they got sacked. Mm. They, they did their job as best they could. You know, you didn't speak up because you get sacked. Um, you ruled, you respected authority. Your boss's word was God. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the actual uh, human machine interfaces, um, you know, the classic, but the Geiger count is only reading X rads. 
Yeah, well, that's what it tops out at. Yes, <laughs> I, I did think that was actually <laughs> sad but brilliant. That happened. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I think. You know, just because something's top of a scale doesn't mean it's not going beyond it. Um, yeah. Yes. This podcast is supported by K Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. As a slightly frivolous wrapping up to um, to the interview to some extent, um, if you could send a message to 16-year-old Grant, you maybe just um, completed your... Um, Hello, Bessie. Um, just com- completed your, uh, your sort of GCSEs and GCSEs. stuff. What, yeah. what, what, what bit of advice would you give yourself? What bit of advice would I give myself? God. Um, it's difficult because the software engineer is French. Stay away. No, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't touch that until I was at university. Um, cider is good. Uh, no, my, my advice would be just keep your eyes open and give everything a go because at 16 I was very focused on software this is what I want to do and then there's so much more stuff out there but again the software and the apprenticeship really helped because it allows me to communicate well with engineers but just yeah take opportunities just go have fun good shout is there i mean as, as we've already said you, you you have worked in quite a wide range of um, environments and roles but is there is there still something out there to to challenge you is there an environment or a role that still has it out there i mean i've, I've been quite open that if elon musk comes knocking at my door i'll be a spacex like a shot um uh, like I don't care what else i'm doing because i'll be beating you there because that is the one thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean space yes. um even if not going up there but just being involved in the whole um, you know, the physiological side, the design of interfaces, the cabins, you know, the the rocket, the cockpits, everything, that would be, yeah, that would definitely be it. Although I have to say, deep, dark secret, I've always actually just wanted to design a washing machine. A washing machine? Yeah. Why? A nice and simple washing machine because I always find them really difficult to use no matter how simple they are. It's quite interesting you say that because I was having a conversation um, with Amanda, my better half, the other day about our dishwasher and the fact that the buttons don't lay out in a logical order. Yeah. And so you, you have you have to do you have to press the left hand button to switch it on, press the what then go complete to the right hand side of it to select which option you want, to then come back to a middle button to select which variety you want of it, and then to go on to um, to the bit. And I'm like, well, that, that's just crazy. Um, but anyway, um, a dishwasher, a washing machine. Well, I'll have to keep my eyes open for that, for that, for that, um, for that bit for you. Indeed, thank Clearly. you. <laughs> um, so, um, last question then. What is the? We, you, 2019 was a year full of different things. But what was the most interesting piece of CPD, continuing professional development, thing that you did last year? Difficult one, that. Um, like a good boy, you did do your CPD, didn't you? 
and submit I on did. time and everything. So, um, well done. Well, well, <laughs> not not quite because because I'm still not a full member, and I know I'm going to get a kicking at the next conference because I still haven't done my paperwork yes, properly. Um, but yeah, yes, I still do smart. try and you know do some CPD. Um, it was there was um, a couple of training courses last year that were quite interesting, um, looking at um, sort of the uh, sort of impacts of different management techniques and approaches on um, sort of teams and how they function. Um, not so much how to how you can manage people when you're thinking of putting teams together, because for example, on um, some of the uh, on nuclear new build and some of the other facilities where we're having to build new facilities to take the old ones down um you know, okay. team team structure and converting people in the nuclear industry one of the challenges is the operational how to run a nuclear power station mindset is vastly different to the decommissioning how to take one down mindset because you okay. in some cases you've got people who've nurtured this piece of equipment for 25 years and now they have to destroy it <laughs> And it, it, it it's yes. it's like losing it's it's like asking them to go and shoot their child. Um, you know, yeah. Okay, a bit extreme there, but it's that kind of thing that they you know, they they just can't do it because it means you know so many you know memories, blood, sweat, and tears kind of thing gone into it, and now we're taking it down. So it was it was learning it was, it was that kind of um sort of how to manage those teams and how to try and set them up and you know modify their thinking that was uh, very interesting. And to be, you can really see that. I can I can see how that would be um, be quite hard work for them. Well, mm. Grant, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Even though I've known you for such a long period of time, I've certainly learned an awful lot about um, your background and motivation and things. So thank you very much. We'll hopefully see you at conference. And um, when, of course, you'll have all your paperwork to be done done to be a member, won't you? Or I'll won't just you? get beaten up, yes. Uh, it's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you, Larry, and uh, like thank you for uh, asking me to take part in the in the podcast. It's a real honour, and yeah, look forward to seeing you in April. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.